smartcast you're listening to a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast you're listening to on the record with me sunitra chaudhary and our guest today is former foreign secretary nirupama rao menon who has a new book out it's called the fractured himalayas and it looks at the backdrop and the history of the relationship between india tibet and china it is a complicated history and it is very very relevant right now because of the border standoff that we are witnessing at the lac for the last year and a half so to talk more about her book and by talking about her book to give us perspective on what is happening right now um i welcome nirupama rao menon here on the record thank you so much for speaking with us thank you sunetra very happy to be here so i want to start by asking you just the whole timing of it is it that did you start writing this book during the pandemic and was the situation which started around april may last year with china is that what prompted you to write down the backdrop and the history of these two countries uh well sunetra i think the uh, fact of the confrontation along the line of actual control in eastern ladakh and all the events that you saw unfolding from the summer of 2020 uh, certainly um accelerated let me say the process of completion of the book actually i had started writing it about 4 years ago because as you know there must have seen from the book there was a lot of research involved in putting this whole narrative together and uh, i had you know proceeded along at the usual pace i had so much on my plate and there were so many other preoccupations that kept me distracted and prevented me from finishing the book but once the lockdown was in place i think there was an enforced sense of discipline that enabled me to complete the book and my family certainly kept me on track saying that you have to finish it and i kind of just hunkered down and completed the manuscript by the beginning of this year and after that of course you know you go through the whole process of proofreading and editing and and uh, then i had to add the maps and the bibliography and the notes so it took its own time but there it is now and i have the book in my hand it's with me no it's fascinating especially because um you know someone like me who's not a china expert you of course are you were posted there as ambassador as well uh, you retired as foreign secretary in 2011 um and it's fascinating to get some of the nuances of the relationship now what i wanted to ask you was what you know we've known because it keeps coming up again and again as well especially because people have been talking so much about it ever since the standoff with china uh, this entire you know topic of uh, prime minister nehru's miscalculation when it came to china you deal with it as well but what is the it's an issue which has been talked about so much what was your objective when you started writing about this thing uh, well sunetra my objective really was to inform uh, a young generation of indians about the very nuanced and complex nature of this entire narrative 
because it's very uh, interesting and very obvious that with the benefit of hindsight, that everybody has 2020 vision. But what I tried to demonstrate through writing this book is that hindsight is never, you know, fully accurate. And you have to place yourself in the context of those developments, those events, and uh, what the leaders and what the policymakers were faced with, the kind of challenges they were faced with when making these decisions. So I've tried to offer a more nuanced narrative. And I've also tried to underline that while, you know, it's usually the textbook gospel of many to blame Nehru for everything that went wrong with China, I've tried to say that, you know, it was not as if Nehru was not aware of the dangers and the risks and the pitfalls of uh, of uh, dealing with this big neighbor next door, this big neighbor that had come up against us in the Himalayas. As you know, when the Chinese entered Tibet, it was famously said by one of our officials who was posted in Lhasa, Sumul Sinha, that the Chinese have entered Tibet and the Himalayas no longer exist. I think to some extent, Nehru was also aware of that. He was aware that the basic challenge that runs across the spine of Asia is the challenge between India and China. And he said as much when he met an Indian delegation that was going to China in 1952, when he had a briefing meeting with them. So he understood the nature of the challenge, but at the same time, I think he was also quite... um, focused on the need for a peaceful environment in which India could develop and India could consolidate its neighborhood. And therefore, he felt that friendship with China, that uh, dialogue with China, that some kind of understanding with China. uh, Here, you would have these two big countries, the big two of Asia, working together and that there could be a third force in world politics and that would redound to India's benefit. Now, as it turned out, he was uh, he was proved uh, wrong in his calculations about China. But I'd like, I've tried to emphasize in the book that he was concerned about security along India's frontiers. And he really was the one who uh, took the decisions to consolidate our administration closer to to the Himalayan borders, extend connectivity, improve infrastructure. So uh, blaming Nehru may not entirely uh, solve the problem for us, or at least uh, put us at ease in understanding what happened. I completely get that. And I see the kind of nuance you brought in, especially when, you know, the when Chinese uh, moved into Tibet, at that time, how Nehru... Um, despite the fact that people felt that he was soft on on them, that how he talked about and stressed on the need for maintaining Tibet's autonomy. But what I think perhaps where the uh, cliche or where the kind of general perception in your book is proved right, perhaps, is the kind of difference between how Sadar Patel, the deputy prime minister, uh, and the home minister at the time, how he saw the Chinese as a threat and and the difference between him and Nehru on that. And I found it fascinating, as you reveal in your book, that he had these, that Patel had these secret meetings with the head of the intelligence. Uh, well, um, yes, Sadat Patel, uh, I 
believe had an aversion for communism and he distrusted communist China and he did not see any good coming about with the Chinese entry into Tibet. You're right about that. And I think to to a large extent, Nehru understood that also subconsciously. The second point that I'd like to make is that, uh, you know, Sadar Patel unfortunately passed away in December 1950. So uh, he was not around when a lot of the decisions in regard to China policy were taken subsequently. So we really don't know how things would have played out if he had lived and if he had uh, been uh, uh, an important uh, constituent, an important uh, force in the making of our policy towards China. So, you know, uh, at this moment, I can't conjecture about what might have happened if he had lived. But let me add that from my research and from my study of the papers, it was very clear that from 1949 onwards, Nehru was worried about the fact that the Chinese were going to enter Tibet, that that was going to change the scene along our frontiers, that that was going to have implications for our security. But he had a foreign policy where he felt that in the time of a Cold War, he didn't want India to be dragged into supporting either side, either the United States or the Soviet Union. He wanted India to be part of a third force in world politics. And he felt that cooperation with China, this new country, this new force that had come up along India's frontiers, this big nation, uh, the other one being India in Asia, uh, there was need for India and China to really open up a dialogue between each other and to come to some degree of understanding about uh, the situation in Asia. And I think that was his foreign policy. But his frontier policy, let me say, was about not yielding an inch to China as far as our frontiers were concerned. The the problem lay in the fact that when it came to Tibet, we gave up whatever rights and privileges we had in Tibet, but we did not seek an understanding simultaneously from China in regard to our common frontier. And and would you say, tell us, and especially, you know, those who are listening to this, those who are reading about this, you write a lot. And I found it fascinating about the role that was played by India's first envoy to China. Um, And is he, from your writing, it appears that, you know, you feel your assessment is that a lot of the kind of miscalculation or perhaps whatever India took away at that time, was because of uh, Ambassador Panikar, who was there at that time. Tell us more about him. Well, I think Nehru and Panikar had uh, had a very good understanding between themselves. And and even if the rest of the Foreign Office distrusted Sardar Panikar or, you know, felt that he was being too appeasing of the Chinese, uh, he was somehow able to gild his dispatches in a manner that really pleased Nehru and that somehow established a direct communication with Nehru. So, yes, to, to that extent, I believe that uh, uh, Nehru listened Listened to Sardar Panikar, Ambassador Panikar, and Ambassador Panikar, once he had become envoy to communist China, you know, if you remember, he was also envoy to nationalist China. He was envoy to the Gomindang before the collapse of the national nationalist regime, before the establishment of the People's Republic. But once he came to Beijing as ambassador to the People's Republic, his attitude seemed to be more, uh, you know, in let there was a degree. 
degree of awe, let us say, about this new regime that had established itself, that had won the civil war against the nationalists, uh, that was consolidating its power at a rapid pace uh, within China's frontiers. And uh, what he was communicating back to Nehru was, in a sense, saying that if it came to Tibet, there was very little that India could do, that the Tibetan dispensation led by the Dalai Lama and the clergy, uh, the Buddhist clergy, was really anachronistic, that it that it could, it could not face up to the force of the Chinese, uh, the new Chinese regime. And therefore, uh, you know, India had come to to had would have to come to term with terms with these realities. So that's where I believe, uh, you know, Panika's advice in taking Panika's advice, uh, perhaps uh, Jawaharlal Nehru sort of uh, set aside his very real reservations about the implications for India's security of China's entry into Tibet. I wanted to ask you, as a, a former ambassador to China, and from reading your book, it's fascinating how so many people keep referring to China as, you know, and talk about the mind games. Some people refer to the thinking in China as cunning. How much of that is particular only to China? Or is it true of negotiating any kind of tricky diplomatic relationship? Well, in any negotiation, I think each side has to understand the other comprehensively. Uh, you have to anticipate the kind of positions that the other side is going to take. You have to be very clear about what your bottom line is. You have to be uh, totally uh, lucid about you know, what you can give up and what you cannot give up. I think that applies to any any set of dip diplomatic negotiations, whether it's the Chinese or whether it's any other country. So, yes, you're right about that. When it comes to diplomacy, negotiation is an art, uh, even more than a science, and that uh, one has to understand one's opponent perfectly in order to be able to master a negotiation and to come to conclusions that safeguard your interest. Mr. I wanted to ask you, with all of this kind of scholarship that you have on China and this book has come out, it is so relevant and so interesting right now because sometimes I felt that, you know, the crisis um, and the kind of aggression that we are talking about when it comes to China, it's so relevant because of the headlines we've been reading uh, about China in the last year and a half. Do you think what's happening right now, if you put all that we know and the history on it to what's happening right now, how would you term the talks that have been happening? There are 13th round of talks that are happening do you feel that things are moving somewhere or is it yet again an instance of um, things being horribly misread? Well, I don't believe we're misreading the Chinese now. We've dealt with them for over seven decades. Many lessons have been learned. Many conclusions have been drawn. And I think we understand the terrain so much better. We understand the contours of the problem uh, so much more clearly. So I don't believe uh, we're losing ground on that front uh, any longer. Uh, the fact is that uh, we have a terribly complex uh, 
a territorial dispute with China. It's the longest standing land border dispute, I think, anywhere in the world. It's the, anyway, uh, in terms of the territory involved, it's the, one of the largest disputes you can think of at this point of time. Now, what has happened along the line of actual control in eastern Ladakh and in some other areas of the border is that the Chinese have become so, so much more active, so much more assertive, so much more aggressive, if I may use the word. And uh, that uh, has entailed uh, a drastic change in the situation along the line of actual control for India. Tensions have arisen, and most importantly, the mechanisms and the regimes and the arrangements and agreements that we had for maintaining peace and tranquility and to build confidence between the two sides have essentially broken down, which is extremely unfortunate. So uh, India is on the right track in trying to seek through uh, patient negotiation, de-escalation and disengagement so that the situation along the line of actual control can revert to normal so that the status quo can be restored. So we are on the right track, but it's proving complex, it's proving protracted, and it's proving very complicated. But uh, obviously, what is the choice? I mean, wars, as I said in my book, are imperfect chisels in which to carve out peaceful tomorrows. I quoted Martin Luther King, and I think a war is an imperfect chisel, and it's not going to be able to solve anything for us. So there is no choice but to continue uh, to seek de-escalation and to arrive at some degree of disengagement so that we are able to reduce tensions in this in this area. But don't you forget, there is an underlying territorial border dispute between the two countries. And unless or until we're able to solve it, uh, you know, we will not have a permanent lasting solution to these problems. What makes you say that it's heading towards the right direction? Because just as an outsider, um, you know, it's we see these statements after every round. As I said, there have been 13 rounds till now. And in fact, one of the last statements after a long time brought up had the Chinese asserting their sovereignty. So I wanted to ask you, are there signs that you see as an expert which give you optimism about these talks, which perhaps we are not seeing? Well, I think we have to be completely dispassionate about these matters. Uh, once you understand the complexity of the problem and the dimensions and the contours, as I said, uh, you know, you will understand that these issues do not get resolved overnight, that patience and perseverance are required and you have to be completely dispassionate. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying we should be detached from questions of sovereignty, but I would use the word detachment in another context. You know, the media, uh, with no offense meant, tends to, you know, the pendulum swings either towards pessimism or towards optimism. But, you know, you un diplomacy is the art of the middle road, is the, is the art of seeking solutions not through war and conflict, but through negotiation and to and through peaceful discussion. So we are pursuing that path, whether it's our military commanders who are having these, you know, long drawn out uh, commander level meetings 
or whether it's the Ministry of External Affairs or whether it's the political leadership discussing these things with the Chinese. Uh, this is being conducted across dimensions, across disciplines, uh, across various sectors of uh, the policymaking establishment. And I think that's the way to go about it. That's the way we conduct diplomacy. You don't think at some point, especially looking at this, some people feel that perhaps it's time for a political resolution because there seems to be a bit of an impasse right now. You don't agree with that. No, I certainly do not disagree with it. I think we must seek a political solution. And uh, our prime minister and the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, had established a channel of communication, as you know, through the informal summits, through the various meetings they have been having over the years. Uh, unfortunately, since the Galwan Valley incident, we haven't had that kind of direct communication. But, you know, Galwan was such a shock to the entire structure of the bilateral relationship relationship between India and China. And this, you know, situation as we see it today was to be expected. But I think where you can uh, understand and gauge that there is scope for optimism is the fact that we've kept the channels of communication open and that this is these matters are being discussed. But I agree with you, unless, uh, you know, we act and we work simultaneously towards seeking a political solution of the larger problem, larger boundary question between India and China. I believe that uh, the future, you know, is not going to be uh, as clear as we would wish it to be. I don't want to get into nitty gritties, but just because so many, so much has been said about it. Uh, when, when just a few months ago, the whole process of disengagement started, ma'am. At that time, there were some people who were watching and they said that we shouldn't have given up the advantage that we had by being in Kailash Heights and by um, retracting from there because China certainly hasn't left the, some of the hotspots that they said that they would. Do you, do you think that's true, that we shouldn't have given up that advantage? Really, I don't want to, I don't think we should be getting into the nitty gritty of it. That's not the purpose of uh, my interview with you uh, this evening. Uh, you know, we have to look at the, as I said, uh, the wider dimensions of the problem. Now, first of all, you have a line of actual control between uh, the two countries. Uh, the second point is that line of actual control has not been mutually defined uh, between uh, the two nations uh, for whatever reason. And I think a lot of the uh, responsibility for that lies on the Chinese side because they have been unwilling uh, to work with us to seek that uh, mutually agreed uh, delineation of the line of actual control. The third point is that the Chinese have become much more assertive along that line and they have sought to redefine that line of actual control in certain pockets, which is really what has led to the escalation of tensions between the two countries and resulted in events like what happened in Galwan and also has contributed to the continuing standoff in areas like, uh, like Gogra and uh, 
other sections of the border, whether it's in the Depsang Plain also, which is, of course, a longer standing problem. But the fact is that you are dealing with a nation, with China, that has emerged, that has put decline and poverty and and uh, exploitation behind them and is, you know, racing, trying to race to the top to be the leading power of the world. So we are dealing with a neighbor like that. The second point is there is an asymmetry of power between India and China, which is also something we have to contend with. What do we do under these circumstances? Is the solution to, you know, to take up cudgels against China and to and to fight till the last man in order to ensure that we are able to clear them out? Yes, that may be the ideal solution. And that may, that may uh, you know, answer all our patriotic urges and all our nationalist, uh, you know, desires, as it were. But in a practical, real world, is that going to provide a lasting solution to these problems? It will not. So I believe that, uh, uh, yes, we have a serious situation today. Uh, we are dealing with a, with a leading superpower uh, on the global stage as a neighbor of ours. And uh, we have to obviously stick to our guns. We have to uh, we have to ensure that our integrity, territorial integrity, and sovereignty are assured and protected. And uh, but at this, uh, while we're doing that, I believe that we must ensure that the communication with this other side is kept open. Because if there is any lesson to be learned from the past, is that. You know, that conflict that we fought in 1962 uh, did not really solve anything, if you would agree. It really didn't solve anything. Yes, it's true that uh, everybody sees it as a Chinese betrayal and as a defeat of India. I don't believe India was defeated. I don't believe a nation like India can be really defeated. And uh, so let's not let's not you know provide these easy definitions uh, of right and wrong and uh, victory and defeat to what happened we have to look to the future and understand from the past there is much to be learned from that past in this relationship which is why i wrote this book and i would urge everybody to un- read and understand uh, through these pages that you know it isn't it, it isn't so it isn't so simple and uh, you can't deduce such easy conclusions as many of us are wont to do when you look at our problems with China. Is the challenge, as you write in the book as well, the fact that, you know, whether it's in 1962 or the 50s or even now, the fact that we don't have those lines actually demarcated? I mean, everyone kept falling back to the McMohan line. But as you point out in the book, it's not clearly defined when you come to the Northeast. So is part of the solution that whenever India and China agree that they actually map it out in black and white? Well, I haven't said that it's not clearly defined when it comes to the Northeast. I don't think I ever said that in the book. What I have said is that the McMahon line has never been recognized by China. 
and uh, that the Chinese have their own views about the right of uh, Tibet to have signed this agreement with the British Indian government. And that's a whole history that you have to understand. The fact is that we uh, we were we were we did not lose time. Let us put it that way in consolidating our position up to the McMahon line, the northeastern frontier, soon after independence in the early 50s, which we didn't do in the Aksaichin area, as you know. And but the whole terrain is very different. The terrain in eastern Ladakh is extremely different from the terrain in Arunachal Pradesh, as you know, which is which is the terrain in Arunachal Pradesh is much more habitable much more richly endowed in terms of natural resources there is vegetation there is water uh, it supports human life which is not the case in aksai chin as you know so the history tells you that that it was you know while we moved and and thank god we moved quickly while the chinese were entering tibet we were also consolidating our our administration and the extent of our presence right up to the mcmahon line which is one of the most sensible steps strategically that we took and nobody seems to remember that today while we are in this you know this whole industry of blaming jawaharlal nehru has grown from strength to strength without understanding the steps that were taken under his leadership and administration to consolidate that administration up to you know the northeastern frontier I think one of the diplomats I think that it was a Chinese envoy who said in the last few months that people should focus on on the relationship of trade that India and China share instead of just focusing on the boundary issue would you agree with that and if if so or if you disagree with that I mean what about the fact that India uh you know we've part of the action that we've taken is just banned some the the um uh, chinese products and also a lot of the chinese apps is that the in retrospect now is that the way forward as well when i i you know just as we talk of disengagement along the line of actual control when it comes to the economic and trade relationships that we have built up with the chinese and there's some huge uh, you know extent of of uh, interaction that has gone on over the last few decades and the structure and the extent of the relationship that we have in the trade and economic areas is huge with china so it's not easy to turn the page back on that overnight but i think what galwan has taught us and what the fallout of galwan has taught us and you know the entire impact it has had on the bilateral relationship i think it has taught us to understand that you know slowly we will have to develop more resilience uh, more uh, self uh, you know uh, lack of we, we have to reduce our dependence let us say on the chinese in many many areas in many key areas and that is already happening whether it's telecommunications whether it's uh, building more resilient supply chains in uh, in cooperation and in dialogue with other countries beyond china in the indo-pacific region with our partners like japan within the quad for instance with uh, the asean countries southeast asia now you know we are looking west with this new western quad that we are talking of with the UAE and with the United States and with Israel so uh, india i believe is on the right track in seeking to reduce dependence on china i think the chinese 
leadership or the policy making establishment tends to come up with these boilerplate recommendations that you know focus on trade uh, you know forget about what is happening uh, on the on the border so it's not easy you know to follow such such formulaic uh, you know uh, sort of very uh, very um, mechanical let's say solutions to to what we face uh, in the india china relationship today uh, i think uh, you know we cannot obviously ignore our disregard the situation along the border we have to seek to resolve it through protracted uh, dialogue through negotiation through these meetings that are going on and at the same time this process of uh, lowering and reducing our dependence on china and so many things whether it's uh, the apis the advanced pharmaceutical ingredients for instance whether it's electronic components whether it's uh, telecom equipment uh, you name it i think uh, this has been you know it's it's a wide awake moment for us today when we've come to realize that that kind of dependence does not serve india's strategic interest and we have to seek to Uh, develop alternate means of uh, of ensuring that we are much more resilient and much more able to withstand these shocks in the future so that means in the coming few years and especially with the kind of realignment that we are seeing especially with the biden administration um that this kind of antagonism or at least this competition is here to stay Yes I think uh, you know uh, with a lot of for a lot of countries I think the rise and emergence of China the way China is straddling the global stage today uh, the kind of reverberations that are being felt all around and there you know reverberations that are tending to be uh, causing a lot of turbulence in the environment I think for a lot of countries uh, we have to not only understand what the implications of the rise of china what the emergence of china should mean for us it's also a time i believe to develop uh, new alignments new coalitions of the willing as it's called and new uh, patterns and habits of cooperation with many other of our partners particularly our democratic partners uh, in the region and in other parts of the world uh, so this is really a time uh, for much more creativity much more uh, much less risk aversion i would say when it comes to developing new coalitions and new alignments uh, so for india particularly because we are we we do live in a very difficult neighborhood today Nirvana Rawman and thank you so much for speaking with us and to everyone I just want to say that uh, her book The Fractured Himalayas is fast paced it really gives you a lot of background in a manner which is so interesting and I recommend it for everyone thank you so much uh, for joining us thank you so much Sunetra thank you bye This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.